0: Chapter 5 of An Essay in Character, appended to In Flanders Fields and Other Poems. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Kachuk. An Essay in Character by Andrew MacPhail. Chapter 5 South Africa. In the autumn of 1914, after John McRae had gone overseas, I was in a warehouse in Montreal in which one might find an old piece of mahogany wood. His boxes were there in storage, with his name plainly printed upon them. The storeman, observing my interest, remarked, This Dr. McRae cannot be doing much business. He is always going to the wars. The remark was profoundly significant of the state of mind upon the subject of war. Which prevailed at the time in Canada in more intelligent persons. To this storeman, war merely meant that the less usefully employed members of the community sent their boxes to him for safekeeping until their return. War was a great holiday from work, and he had a vague remembrance that some fifteen years before this customer had required of him a similar service when the South African War broke out. Either in Essa or in Posse john mccrae had always been going to the wars at fourteen years of age he joined the guelph highland cadets and rose to the rank of first lieutenant as his size and strength increased he reverted to the ranks and transferred to the artillery in due time he rose from gunner to major the formal date of his gazette is seventeen three o two as they write it in the army but he earned his rank in South Africa. War was the burden of his thought. War and death the theme of his verse. At the age of thirteen, we find him at a gallery in Nottingham, writing this note. I saw the picture of the artillery going over the trenches at Tel El Kabir. It is a good picture, but there are four teams on the guns. Perhaps an extra one had to be put on, if his nomenclature was not correct the observation of the young artillerist was exact such excesses were not permitted in his father's battery in guelph ontario during this same visit his curiosity led him into the house of lords and the sum of his written observation is when someone is speaking no one seems to listen at all his mother i never knew canada is a large place with his father i had four hours talk from seven to eleven one june evening in london in nineteen seventeen at the time i was on leave from france to give the cavendish lecture a task which demanded some thought and after two years in the army it was a curious sensation watching one's mind at work again the day was sunday i had walked down to the river to watch the flowing tide TO ONE BROUGHT UP IN A COUNTRY OF STREAMS AND A MOVING SEA, THE CURSE OF FLANDERS IS HER STAGNANT WATERS. IT IS LITTLE WONDER THE EXILES FROM THE JUDEAN HILLSIDES WEPT BESIDE THE SLIMY RIVER. THE THAMES BY EVENING IN JUNE, MEMORIES THAT REACHED FROM TACITUS TO WORDSWORTH, THE embrasure THAT EXTENDS IN FRONT OF THE EGYPTIAN OBELISK FOR A STANDING PLACE, AND SOME CHILDREN SWIMMING A DOG. That was the scene and circumstance of my first meeting with his father. A man of middle age was standing by. He wore the flashings of a lieutenant-colonel, and for badges the artillery grenades. He seemed a friendly man, and under the influence of the moment, which he also surely felt, I spoke to him. A fine river. That was a safe remark. But I know a finer. Farper and Avena? I put the stranger to the test. No, he said. The St. Lawrence is not of Damascus. He had answered to the sign, and looked at my patches. I have a son in France myself, he said. His name is Macrae. Not John Macrae. John Macrae is my son. The resemblance was instant, but this was an older man than at first sight he seemed to be. I asked him to dinner at Morley's my place of resort for a length of time beyond the memory of all but the oldest servants he had already dined but he came and sat with me and told me marvellous things david mcrae had raised and trained a field-battery in guelph and brought it overseas he was at the time upwards of seventy years of age and was considered on account of years alone unfit to proceed to the front for many years he had commanded a field-battery in the Canadian militia, went on manoeuvres with his cannons, and fired round-shot. When the time came for using shells, he bored the fuse with a gimlet, and if the gimlet were lost in the grass, the gun was out of action until the useful tool could be found. This cannon-ball would travel over the country, according to the obstacles it encountered, and if it struck a man it might break his leg in such a martial atmosphere the boy was brought up and he was early nourished with the history of the highland regiments also from his father he inherited or had instilled into him a love of the out-of-doors a knowledge of trees and plants a sympathy with birds and beasts domestic and wild when the south african war broke out a contingent was dispatched from canada but it was so small that few of those desiring to go could find a place this explains the genesis of the following letter i see by to-night's bulletin that there is to be no second contingent i feel sick with disappointment and do not believe that i have ever been so disappointed in my life for ever since this business began i am certain there have not been fifteen minutes of my waking hours that it has not been in my mind it has to come sooner or later. One campaign might cure me, but nothing else ever will, unless it should be old age. I regret bitterly that I did not enlist with the first, for I doubt if ever another chance will offer like it. This is not said in ignorance of what the hardships would be. I am ashamed to say I am doing my work in a merely mechanical way if they are taking surgeons on the other side i have enough money to get myself across if i knew anyone over there who could do anything i would certainly set about it if i can get an appointment in england by going i will go my position here i do not count as an old boot in comparison in the end he accomplished the desire of his heart and sailed on the laurentian Concerning the voyage, one transcription will be enough. On orderly duty, I have just been out taking the picket at eleven-thirty p.m. In the stables, the long row of heads in the half-darkness, the creaking of the ship, the shivering of the hull from the vibration of the engines, the sing of a sentry on the spar-deck to some passer-by. Then to the forward deck, the sky half-covered with scudding clouds, the stars bright in the intervals. The wind whistling a regular blow that tries one's ears. The constant swish as she settles down to a sea. And looking aft, the funnel with a wreath of smoke trailing away off into the darkness on the starboard quarter. The patch of white on the funnel discernible dimly. The masts drawing maps across the sky as one looks up. The clank of shovels coming up through the ventilators if you have ever been there you know it all there was a voluntary service at six two ships lanterns and the men all around the background of sky and sea and the strains of nearer my god to thee rising up in splendid chorus it was a very effective scene and it occurred to me that this was the ruibachis singing on the road as the song says the next entry is from South Africa, Greenpoint Camp, Cape Town, February twenty-fifth, 1900. You have no idea of the work. Section commanders live with their sections, which is the right way. It makes long hours. I never knew a softer bed than the ground is these nights. I really enjoy every minute, though there is anxiety. We have lost all our spare horses, we have only enough to turn out the battery, and no more." After a description of a number of the regiments camped nearby them, he speaks of the Indian troops, and then says, We met the high priest of it all, and I had a five minutes' chat with him. Kipling, I mean. He visited the camp. He looks like his pictures, and is very affable. He told me I spoke like a Winnipegger. He said we ought to fine the men for drinking unboiled water. DON'T GIVE THEM CB. IT IS NO GOOD. FIND THEM OR DRIVE COMMON SENSE INTO THEM. ALL CANADIANS HAVE COMMON SENSE. THE NEXT LETTER IS FROM THE LINES OF COMMUNICATION. VAN Wyck's Vlay, MARCH twenty-second, 1900. HERE I AM WITH MY FIRST COMMAND. EACH PLACE WE STRIKE IS A LITTLE MORE GOD-FORSAKEN THAN THE LAST, AND THIS PLACE WINS UP-TO-DATE. We marched last week from Victoria west to Carnarvon, about eighty miles. We stayed there over Sunday, and on Monday my section was detached with mounted infantry, I being the only artillery officer. We marched fifty-four miles in thirty-seven hours with stops. Not very fast, but quite satisfactory. My horses doing well, although very thin. Night before last on the road we halted and i dismounted for a minute when we started i pulled on the lines but no answer the poor old chap was fast asleep in his tracks and in about thirty seconds too this continuous marching is really hard work the men at every halt just drop down in the road and sleep until they are kicked up again in ten minutes they do it willingly too i am commanding officer adjutant officer on duty and all the rest since we left the main body talk about the army in flanders you should hear this battalion i always knew soldiers could swear but you ought to hear these fellows i am told the first contingent has got a name among the regulars three weeks later he writes april tenth nineteen hundred we certainly shall have done a good march when we get to the railroad four hundred seventy eight miles through a country desolate of forage carrying our own transport and one-half rations of forage and frequently the men's rations for two days running we had nine hours in the saddle without food my throat was sore and swollen for a day or two and i felt so sorry for myself at times that i laughed to think how i must have looked sitting on a stone drinking a pan of tea without trimmings that had got cold and eating a shapeless lump of brown bread my one hank drawn around my neck serving as hank and bandage alternately it is miserable to have to climb up on one's horse with a head like a buzz saw the sun very hot and gargle in one's water bottle it is surprising how i can go without water if i have to on a short stretch that is of ten hours in the sun it is after nightfall that the thirst really seems to attack one and actually gnaws ONE THINKS OF ALL THE COOL DRINKS AND GOOD THINGS ONE WOULD LIKE TO EAT. PLEASE UNDERSTAND THAT THIS IS NOT FOR ONE INSTANT IN ANY SPIRIT OF GROWLING." THE DETAIL WAS NOW ESTABLISHED AT VICTORIA ROAD. THREE ENTRIES APPEAR. APRIL 23, 1900. WE ARE STILL HERE IN CAMP, HOPING FOR ORDERS TO MOVE, BUT THEY HAVE NOT YET COME. MOST OF THE OTHER TROOPS HAVE GONE squadron of the mcr my messmates for the past five weeks have gone and i am left an orphan i was very sorry to see them go they in the kindness of their hearts say if i get stranded they will do the best they can to get a troop for me in the squadron or some such employment impracticable but kind i have no wish to cease to be a gunner victoria road may twentieth nineteen hundred the horses are doing as well as one can expect, for the rations are insufficient. Our men have been helping to get ready a rest camp near us, and have been filling mattresses with hay. Every fatigue party comes back from the hospital, their jackets bulging with hay for the horses. Two bales were condemned as too musty to put into the mattresses, and we were allowed to take them for the horses. They didn't leave a spear of it. Isn't it pitiful?' everything that the heart of man and woman can devise has been sent out for the tommies but no one thinks of the poor horses they get the worst of it all the time even now we blush to see the handful of hay that each horse gets at a feed the boer war is so far off in time and space that a few further detached references must suffice when riding into bloomfontein met Lord Blank's funeral at the cemetery gates. Band, firing party, Union Jack, and about three companies. A few yards farther on, a Tommy, covered only by his blanket, escorted by thirteen men, all told. The last class distinction that the world can ever make. We had our baptism of fire yesterday. They opened on us from the left flank. Their first shell was about one hundred fifty yards in front, direction good. The next was one hundred yards over, and we thought we were bracketed. Some shrapnel burst over us and scattered on all sides. I felt as if a hailstorm was coming down, and wanted to turn my back. But it was over in an instant. The whistle of a shell is unpleasant. You hear it begin to scream. The scream grows louder and louder. It seems to be coming exactly your way." Then you realize that it has gone over. Most of them fell between our guns and wagons. Our position was quite in the open. With Ian Hamilton's column near Balmoral. The day was cold, much like a December day at home, and by my kit going astray, I had only light clothing. The rain was fearfully chilly. When we got in about dark, we found that the transport could not come up, and it had all our blankets and coats. I had my cape and a rubber sheet for the saddle, both soaking wet. Being on duty, I held to camp, the others making for the house nearby, where they got poor quarters. I bunked out, supperless like everyone else, under an ammunition wagon. It rained most of the night and was bitterly cold. I slept at intervals, keeping the same position all night both legs in a puddle, and my feet being rained on. It was a long night, from dark at five-thirty to morning. Ten men in the infantry regiment next us died during the night from exposure. Altogether I never knew such a night, and with decent luck hope never to see such another. As we passed we saw the Canauts looking at the graves of their comrades of twenty years ago. The battery rode at attention, and gave eyes right, the first time for twenty years, that the roll of a British gun has broken in on the silence of those unnamed graves. We were inspected by Lord Roberts. The battery turned out very smart, and Lord Roberts complimented the Major on its appearance. He then inspected, and afterwards asked to have the officers called out. We were presented to him in turn. He spoke a few words to each of us asking what our corps and service had been. He seemed surprised that we were all field artillery men, but probably the composition of the other Canadian units had to do with this. He asked a good many questions about the horses, the men, and particularly about the spirits of the men. Altogether, he showed a very kind interest in the battery. At nine, took the Presbyterian parade to the lines. The first Presbyterian service since we left Canada. We had the Wright, the Gordons, and the Royal Scots next. The music was excellent, led by the brass band of the Royal Scots, which played extremely well. All the singing was from the Psalms and paraphrases, Old Hundred and Duke Street among them. It was very pleasant to hear the old Reliables once more. McCrae's Covenanters, some of the officers called us, but I should not like to set our conduct up against the standard of those austere men. At Lindenburg. The Boers opened on us at about ten thousand yards, the fire being accurate from the first. They shelled us till dark, over three hours. The guns on our left fired for a long time on Buller's camp, the ones on our right on us. We could see the smoke and flash. Then there was a soul-consuming interval of twenty to thirty seconds, when we would hear the report, and about five seconds later, the burst. Many in succession burst over and all around us. I picked up pieces which fell within a few feet. It was a trying afternoon, and we stood around wondering. We moved the horses back, and took cover under the wagons. We were thankful when the sun went down especially as for the last hour of daylight they turned all their guns on us. The casualties were few. The next morning, a heavy mist prevented the enemy from firing. The division marched out at 7.30 a.m. The attack was made in three columns. Cavalry Brigade on the left, Buller's troops in the center, Hamilton's on the right. The Canadian artillery were with Hamilton's division. THE APPROACH TO THE HILL WAS EXPOSED EVERYWHERE, EXCEPT WHERE SOME COVER WAS AFFORDED BY RIDGES. WE MARCHED OUT AS SUPPORT TO THE GORDONS, THE CAVALRY AND THE ROYAL HORSE ARTILLERY, GOING OUT TO OUR RIGHT AS A FLANK GUARD. WHILE WE WERE WAITING, THREE ONE-HUNDRED-POUND SHELLS STRUCK THE TOP OF THE RIDGE IN SUCCESSION, ABOUT FIFTY TO SEVENTY-FIVE YARDS IN FRONT OF THE BATTERY LINE. WE BEGAN TO FEEL RATHER SHAKY on looking over the field at this time one could not tell that anything was occurring except for the long-range guns replying to the fire from the hill the enemy had opened fire as soon as our advance was pushed out with a glass one could distinguish the infantry pushing up in lines five or six in succession the men being some yards apart then came a long pause broken only by the big guns at last we got the order to advance, just as the big guns of the enemy stopped their fire. We advanced about four miles, mostly up the slope, which is, in all, about fifteen hundred feet high, over a great deal of rough ground, and over a number of spruits. The horses were put to their utmost to draw the guns up the hills. As we advanced, we could see artillery crawling in from both flanks, all converging to the main hill while far away the infantry and cavalry were beginning to crown the heights near us then the field guns and the pom-poms began to play as the field guns came up to a broad plateau section after section came into action and we fired shrapnel and lyddite on the crests ahead and to the left every now and then a rattle of mausers and metfords would tell us that the infantry were at their work BUT PRACTICALLY THE BATTLE WAS OVER. FROM BEING AN INFANTRY ATTACK, AS EXPECTED, IT WAS THE GUNNER'S DAY, AND THE ARTILLERY SEEMED TO DO EXCELLENT WORK. GENERAL BULLER PUSHED UP THE HILL AS THE GUNS WERE AT WORK, AND AFTERWARDS GENERAL HAMILTON, THE ONE AS GRIM AS HIS PICTURES, THE OTHER LOOKING VERY HAPPY. THE WIND BLEW THROUGH US COLD LIKE ICE AS WE STOOD ON THE HILL as the artillery ceased fire the mist dropped over us chilling us to the bone we were afraid we should have to spend the night on the hill but a welcome order came sending us back to camp a distance of five miles by the roads as buller would hold the hill and our force must march south our front was over eight miles wide and the objective fifteen hundred feet higher than our camp and over six miles away if the enemy had had the nerve to stand, the position could scarcely have been taken, certainly not without the loss of thousands. For this campaign, he received the Queen's Medal with Three Clasps. End of Chapter 5